Hey friends, are you struggling to attract and retain top talent? If you're worried about recruiting and retention, consider Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices so you can spend more time growing your business and less time on HR. Visit Insperity.com and download their free ebook on how to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your success. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Tonight on The Readout. Thank you very much and a very big hello to a place where we've done very well, Sioux Falls. Thank you very much, Sioux Falls. So, Sioux City, let me ask you, how many people come? How many people come from Sioux City? How many people? Not just the wrong city, but also the wrong state. And he says Biden's losing it. That was Trump on Sunday, just hours before Judge Tanya Chutkin reinstated the gag order in the federal election interference case, which he may have already violated. Also tonight, my commentary on the violence in the Middle East and the questions we all should be asking. Plus, the war's impact on politics here in the U.S. as Republicans escalate their extreme rhetoric and President Biden shows signs of political political vulnerability, despite the good economic and labor news that just keeps rolling in. But we begin tonight with Donald Trump getting a taste of what he has long complained that he's always wanted, the same treatment under the law as every other American citizen. It comes in the form of a reimposed gag order from Judge Tanya Chutkin, who is overseeing his federal election interference case in Washington, D.C. The gag order, which was initially put in place two weeks ago and temporarily lifted by Judge Chutkin shortly afterwards, prohibits Trump from making public statements that could intimidate or harass potential witnesses or from making disparaging comments about the prosecutors, court staff, or support personnel. For instance, calling special counsel Jack Smith or his staff deranged or thugs would be a no-no. In her filing over the weekend, Judge Chutkin pointed to one of Trump's social media posts during the pause on the gag order as a clear example for why it had to be put back in place. In the post, Trump attacked his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, a potentially important witness in the trial, as a weakling and a coward if, as the reporting stated, he did in fact make an immunity deal with the special counsel for his testimony. She writes that it would have almost certainly violated the gag order had it not been paused. Not surprisingly, Trump has not taken kindly to the judge's decision going on the attack against her, calling her a true Trump hater with an incurable case of Trump derangement syndrome, which under the gag order he is allowed to say, at least for now. Trump also repeated his claims that the gag order illegally and unconstitutionally takes away my First Amendment right of free speech in the middle of my campaign for president. Of course, that's not true. And the judge goes into great detail in her order as to why Trump, as usual, is wrong when it comes to the law. But this also brings us back to Trump's long-held desire for there to not be a two-tier justice system in this country, that he should be treated like everybody else. And that is exactly what Judge Chutkin is doing. During the hearing, where she first imposed the gag order, the judge acknowledged Trump's First Amendment rights and made concessions on his behalf, but emphasized that just because he happens to be running a political campaign does not give him the right to use any kind of language that he wants, she said. But those critical First Amendment freedoms do not allow him to launch a pretrial smear campaign against participating government staff, 
their families, and foreseeable witnesses. No other criminal defendant would be allowed to do so, and I am not going to allow it in this case. Trump now faces two gag orders, barring him from discussing aspects of his legal cases in the public. And the, the other one comes from the judge overseeing his civil fraud trial in New York that prohibits anyone from publicly commenting about any member of the court staff. Trump has now violated that order twice and has been fined $15,000 and was threatened with jail time by Judge Arthur and Gorin. And, without, and within hours of the federal gag order being reinstated, Trump was already attacking another potential witness, his former attorney general, Bill Barr, calling him, among other things, dumb, weak, and gutless. Whether that violated the gag order is yet to be seen. And if so, what will Judge Chutkin do about it? Before ending the hearing, when she first imposed the gag order, she said, quote, if any party or counsel violates these restrictions, I will consider sanctions as may be necessary. Joining me now is Renato Mariotti, former federal prosecutor and columnist for Political Magazine, and Tim O'Brien, senior executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion and an MSNBC political analyst. Renato, uh, it falls to you to tell us uh, what sanctions, because Donald Trump so far, when he has violated the gag order in the civil case in New York, has been fined a grand total of what, like 20 grand, which he claims he's a billionaire. I know he's not, but still not that much money. What sanctions could he be uh, could be imposed on him in this case? Well, I think she's going to start with monetary penalties. Uh, that did have some impact, even in that New York case that you referred to. And you can't, uh, Joy, you can't start right at sixty. You don't go right from zero to sixty. You you raise the temperature little by little. So I think the judge is going to start there. But where could it go? It could go to pretrial uh, detention. That's what happened to Sam Bankman-Fried. That. Uh, Crypto a guy who's on trial right now, mm -hmm. he ended up getting tossed in pretrial detention when he was leaking uh, his uh, witnesses' diaries to the New York Times, the opposing witness. Another possibility is she could move up the trial date. I mean, she's threatened to do that before. That's always on the table as well. She has wide discretion to do that. And I can't think of anything Donald Trump would like less at this point. Yeah, uh, Tim, I, I wrote one book about Trump. You, you were in court with him, so you, you know better than I do. Uh, where's the pain threshold for him? Uh, because it, it, we know it's going to be killing him that he can't call Jack Smith, you know, a bum or whatever he wants to call him. Uh, what do you think the pain threshold is where it will actually stop, change his behavior? I think putting him in jail. I, I don't think, and I, as, as Renato said, you don't want to get, go to zero to 60 and throw him in jail right away. But I don't think monetary damages are going to shut him up. And, and he's actually, he probably thinks it's good value for his money because one of his goals here is to undermine the integrity of the rule of law and the court system and its participants. And to make all of this seem as if he's the victim of uh, the court is corrupt and there's no merit to the charges in any of these cases. And, and he's doing this in all the cases. So for him, $20,000, $80,000, $100,000 is probably money pretty well spent. Will he want to spend a night in jail? I don't think so. The, the other thing that's looming over all of this is, you know, in three of these cases, three black women are systematically using the law to strip the bark off of him like an old tree. And I don't think that that is sitting well with him. And he hasn't come right out and said it, but I think he does not like being cornered by uh, three wardens of the law. Uh, who he, I think, privately, routinely and grotesquely disparages. 
I think the other thing, you know, that Judge Chutkin's ruling is nine pages and it was very direct and I think it was very elegant and she was very crisp in how she deflated both his criticisms of what was happening to him and reasserted the rule of law in this case. She didn't say she was cutting off his free speech completely. She said, in fact, you can criticize Biden. You can exercise your political speech, but you're not going to target potential witnesses or members of this process. That I will not let you do. Uh, I'm glad you said that about the three prosecutors of color, because if I said a certain other network, their whole A blocks all for tomorrow, 24 hours would be attacking me. Uh, let me go back to you, Renato, because the, the thing is, the other thresholds and Tim knows a lot about this is, is embarrassment. Uh, Trump doesn't like being embarrassed. Um, in the civil fraud trial, each of his kids is going to embarrass him uh, next this, this week, beginning uh, on Wednesday. Donald Trump Jr., I mean, you've seen him on social media. I've seen him. Tim has seen him on social media. We know what he is. Uh, he testifies on Wednesday. On Thursday, it's Eric's turn, the guy who uh, snitched on the fact that they get lots of their money from Russia. Trump himself, Monday the 6th. And then Ivanka, Trump is extremely mad about that one, um, that she's going to testify on the 8th. What is the value to the civil case of their testimony um, and is the prosecutor going to try to use them against their father or just bolster the case that they were lying about the valuations of properties? Yeah, I think the attorney, Attorney General James and her team have a lot to gain from that testimony. You know, don't forget, Joy, they took the fifth a whole lot of times in their prior testimony, in their depositions. That puts them in a very tough spot because they really can't change their testimony now. They really can't say, well, Actually, I took the fifth before. Now I got a totally different approach, and now I'm going to answer. Um, I think it's going to be a bit of a circus, right? Um, and, and realistically, it's just absolutely damning in a civil trial when you're asked questions like, "Did you engage in a scheme to defraud?" and then you take the fifth. I mean, what does that what does that do? Obviously, the judge is entitled in a civil case to infer from that that your answer would incriminate you which I think is devastating. And, and as for Ivanka, you know, you mentioned Trump's not going to be happy with her testimony. You know, she's going to be trying to walk some fine line because she wants to remain on her dad's good side. But we all know yeah. that her her and her husband are, are always come first in her mind. She's going to be concerned about her reputation. She's going to be trying to weave some story. And I unfortunately, I don't think that that's going to add up for her in the end. Yeah. So she really is a billionaire. Thanks to the Saudis giving uh, her husband a big check. Uh, uh, Tim, you know, I mean, the boys can't make their father love them, no matter what they say in their testimony. That's just a thing. Uh, but how much do you think that Ivanka, who, you know, Donald Trump has talked about her like he's kind of married to her, which is really creepy and gross. Um, how do you how much do you think her testimony destabilizes him mentalement? Uh, you know, he prizes Ivanka. I think he sees her as a sort of Aryan trope that he can parade around. Um, and and it represents what he thinks is the best of his own gene pool. He's been over mm -hmm. the years embarrassed by his boys. Uh, to a certain extent, both, both of the boys are fence posts, and he hasn't really ever had the same pride in them that he's taken in in Ivanka. And and I think she, over the years, has has made sure to stay in his good graces while not going completely off the reservation uh, in, in any way. Um, but she's also never been as robustly in his corner and as completely MAGA as the boys are. And, and what you have here now, I think it, it's interesting that her testimony now has been delayed to come after his, 
because she's going to have to listen to what the boys say and find out what the boys say and then what her father says. And then there's going to be documents. And I think the prosecutors are going to paint her into a corner factually. It won't really matter what her allegiances are or uh, how she wants to play her father's graces. She's going to have to figure out whether or not she wants to perjure herself in a courtroom and, 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 and whether or not the fact pattern is just completely damning in her own role that, that Donald Trump and his sons and she have all played, which is to routinely and artificially inflate the value of Trump's holdings uh, or to deflate them in order to cheat the tax man or goad banks into lending him money, depending on what their preferences are. And those are essentially yeah. the two things that are in play in this court case. And Ivanka now becomes a material witness, which I don't think she wants to be. I tell you, Tiffany's the smart one. Uh, let me play you something. Uh, actually, it was quite hilarious, Renato. This is just for you, uh, former prosecutor. Roll them. This is Donald Trump in Iowa. It's cost me a couple of billion dollars to be a politician. And of course, then they made it uh, much worse with legal fees. I have hundred million dollars worth of legal fees and they're doing good. At least I have good lawyers because you can spend a hundred million, have lousy lawyers too. That happens. <laughs> you can spend a hundred million dollars and all your lawyers can end up in court cases with potential felonies. Your thoughts on his good lawyers that he's paying a hundred million dollars of uh, his uh, marks. I mean, sorry, his supporters money on. Wow. If he's paying $100 million for these lawyers, he needs to ask for his money back. Uh, they are definitely uh, they're definitely not worth $100,000 versus $100 million. Uh, I have to say, very bad lawyers. Uh, and yet another lie from Trump. We all know he's not really paying his lawyers. That's why he's ended up with some of the worst lawyers that I've seen uh, handling criminal cases, some of which, of course, are defendants themselves, right? We uh, have had a parade of them going to Fonnie Willis's courtroom in Georgia. What a, <laughs> what a crew that he has assembled, that's for sure. Melissa Murray coined it. MAGA stands for My Attorneys Get Attorneys. <laughs> um, Renato Mariotti, uh, Tim O'Brien, thank you both, my friends. Coming up on The Readout, President Biden calls for a big increase in the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza as hawks and critics try to leverage the conflict in a way that hurts him with American voters. The Readout continues after this. Hey, friends, are you struggling to attract and retain top talent? If you're worried about recruiting and retention, consider Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices so you can spend more time growing your business and less time on HR. Visit Insperity.com and download their free ebook on how to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your success. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. It's no secret that President Biden's unflinching support for Israel and its military response following the deadly Hamas attacks on October 7th has triggered a deep cleavage within the Democratic Party. There are those in the party who are grateful for his support of Israel in this moment. And there are those who are deeply appalled by it. 
These cleavages have drowned out a recent string of major economic victories for the country and its workers on Biden's watch, including news that the United Auto Workers just secured a new labor contract with General Motors, one of the big three auto companies, which will bring to an end a more than 40-day strike and usher in higher wages and better protections for the changing industry. And just last week came word that the U.S. gross domestic product, which measures the total output of the economy, increased by 5 percent, a number Trump never achieved, except during a single quarter after COVID lockdowns lifted. Despite all of that, a majority of Americans remain skittish about the economy, and polling shows they favor Republicans on economic issues. Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips seized on those numbers to announce his intention to challenge President Biden for the Democratic presidential nomination with the goal of getting others to join the race. Maybe people think right now that fighting each other is the way through this. It's not. It has never worked. Are we going to vote out of fear? Are we going to continue down this path of anger and aggression and division and fighting one another? Or are we going to start fighting together? Do you As believe we say, that your candidacy could soften the ground for others to get in? I hope it does. I hope it does. Sincerely hope it does. Right now, Phillips and Marianne Williamson are the only Democratic challengers. But they join independents Cornel West and the very weird Robert Kennedy Jr. There's also the looming threat of the third party no labels, which continues to increase its presence on state ballots. And while President Biden struggles to hold the Democratic coalition together, the Republican Party continues its march toward renominating Donald Trump. This weekend, Mike Pence, who just three years ago was a heartbeat away from the presidency and Trump's dutiful servant, unexpectedly announced that he was bowing out of the 2024 presidential race. He announced it during his appearance at the Republican Jewish Convention in Las Vegas. At the same event and throughout the rest of the weekend, Trump reminded voters what a second term would look like with him in the Oval Office. The United States will stand with Israel all the way, 100 percent, without hesitation, without qualification and without any apology. We're not going to be apologizing. If you spill a drop of American blood, we will spill a gallon of yours. I will cancel the student visas of Hamas and sympathizers on college campuses. The college campuses are being taken over. One thing with us that... If you try to kill our citizens, we will kill you. We will kill you. To all of the resident aliens who joined in the pro-jihadist protests all over this country, all over the world, this month, come 2025, you will find that we will deport you because these are people that are against our country. Ooh, well, on top of all that, the former president has also promised to cut taxes for the wealthy again. Weaken the NATO alliance, fire thousands of civil servants and replace them with Trump loyalists. And of course, he vowed to go after Joe Biden. Yep, that guy, the guy who has four indictments in four different jurisdictions for crimes that include illegal possession of state secrets, coordinating efforts to overthrow American democracy, among other things. That guy is the odds on favorite for the Republican nomination and has a 50 50 chance of getting to run this country again. Good times. Joining me now is Michael Steele, former RNC chair and MSNBC political analyst, and Perry Bacon Jr., columnist for The Washington Post. Thank you all for being here. Michael Steele, let me go to you first. Uh, You know, between Donald Trump not knowing where he is sometimes, being a little confused, uh, and vowing to deport students who he doesn't like their politics and do another Muslim ban and and cut taxes for the super rich again, explain to me 
how he seems to have a stronger hold on his base than Joe Biden, who's got a solid economy and a deal with the UAW. Because his base uh, is uh, loyal to the ideas that uh, Trump has been uh, pushing out there. Why? Because that's how they see the world. That's how they want the world to be. Um, you, you know, the one thing about politics, and you know this from covering it for so many years, Joy, candidates and, 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 and their supporters, their voters, there's a symbiosis there. There's a connection there. And voters are oftentimes see their elected officials as an extension of themselves, which is what I've been trying to get people to understand, that the reason why Donald Trump is tied with Joe Biden right now is that a lot of Americans see Donald Trump as an extension of themselves, how they mm-hmm. see the world, how they feel put upon and, and placed out uh, by by transgendered issues and, and CRT issues and those things that they just don't want to identify with. As for Democrats, I don't know what the hell they thinking. I have no idea. This I mean, you got an incumbent president who is laid out, I mean, with the level of clarity that is. I mean, I wish we had that kind of clarity uh, back in 2010. I mean, 60, 65 seats. I would have had 70, 80 seats in the House if I had that kind of clarity that this guy is laid out. And yet Democrats are second guessing uh, themselves, uh, buying into the hype that they're getting from Republicans about the president's age and about the issues instead of staying focused on the fact that he is the only game in town that's going to hold their place in line and win the election, period. But here Mm -hmm. we are. You know, um, Perry Bacon Jr., you wrote an excellent piece that talked about one of the issues that is dragging uh, President Biden down, and that is this issue of of Gaza and of Israel, um, where there is a definite cleavage between more progressive uh, people in the party and more centrists uh, and on age, younger folks, of all ethnicities uh, are much more uh, have much more empathetic toward the Palestinians than uh, Biden, who is extremely empathetic toward the Israelis. And that's a breach. Um, My theory of the case is that really it's only Democrats that vote on issues. They vote on the economy. If things ain't good in the economy, they're the ones who will stay home. You know, they're the ones who pick an issue and will vote on it. Republicans just vote for the Republican. Your thoughts on this particular issue and how it's impacting Biden's reelect. Um, I like to be part of a party in which people can have differences and respectful differences. And I think there are respectful differences on policy on Israel. And I think there's a good debate. I'm planning to vote for Joe Biden. And I I think most people who are talking about this are, I think I can object to a policy or two he's doing would still vote for him. So I appreciate that the Republicans seem to fall in line. I actually like the the, the Democrats are more diverse in terms of ideology, age, race, religion. And that's a useful thing. It's hard to unify a party that has so many different people in it. And I think that's a good thing. The Democratic Party is so diverse. That said, and and to be fair, I don't I think I don't think Dean Phillips is a huge threat to Joe Biden. Actually, I know he's running. Look, if in January, Raphael Warnock said I'm running for president, I would have thought about voting for Raphael Warnock myself. But it's over now. The, the, the primary really is over now. I think it's now time where Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the ticket. That's where things are headed. 
voters are concerned about Biden's age. That's that's real. And that's not just 30 year olds. I meet some 60 year olds too, who feel that way, too. That said, he should go out. He's he's doing a good job as president most days. I don't I didn't love the comments about civilian casualties in, Pal- in for Palestinians last week. I thought he should have phrased that differently. And I think he has phrased it really since then. That said, I do think that when it comes down to it, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. And I still think most people will come together. He's got some work to do with Arab Americans right now, who in Michigan, I think, are legitimately bringing up issues. They, they have not been happy. There's a sense that he has he's you know sort of valued Israeli lives over Palestinian lives. He's got a year to fix that. But I do think there are things to improve on this policy while thinking most people voted for Biden over Donald Trump will still do that. Uh, you know, and, and uh, I think those are good points, um, Michael. But the the fact that Democrats are so ideologically and racially uh, and religiously diverse, it is harder for any president to make that whole group of people happy. Whereas Republicans just want, you know, tax cuts and not to have to read about black history. Like they're just like, give me those two things and I'm good. And, you know, do a Muslim ban and, and they're and they're they're cool. Well, that, that's that's true of, of today's uh, Republican Party. You know, the the older version, the original version of the GOP, um, you know, suffered from some of that as well. In fact, I would say, and this could be a, a little bit of a warning for Democrats, uh, that because we did not pay attention to those uh, those distant voices within the party that were feeling put out and and not really paid attention to, that festered and 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 you know, germinated to what we see today. Um, and it's a backlash. And, and I've said this on a number of occasions, you and I've talked about it, Joy, that, you know, this fight inside the GOP is not new. This goes back to the 1950s. It goes back to actually to the 1930s. Uh, they Republicans did not know how to respond to the New Deal. So there was friction for those who felt they could, you know, capitalize on it and know those other wanted to destroy it. So that narrative still exists. It's true within the Democratic ranks right now, big, broad tent, a lot of voices, a lot of different interests. But the party leadership, with the titular head being the president, has to figure out narratively how to get everybody on the same page at a critical time like this, meaning voting. That vote needs to turn out. That vote needs to be consistent across all the states that are in play. Uh, and that's one of the bigger dangers for the Democrats right now. Yeah. The last word to you on this, Perry, because uh, abortion did do that in the last election. In 2022, abortion was able to bring Democrats together. Is that issue going to be powerful enough to get Joe Biden back on track when there are all these other issues that are distracting his base? I think we saw in 2022 that the combination of abortion, um, the sort of election denial and then and then the sort of mm-hmm. sense that democracy was under threat 2018 2020 2022 these have been extremely high turnout elections even though the average yeah. democrat does not love biden the way they did barack obama so i think that people are motivated if donald trump is the nominee i still think people right. will run out of their houses to vote against <laughs> him you know not really yeah. necessarily for biden but against him i think it's still right. where we are that's the most yeah. and also the new speaker of the house makes it easy Easier to run Ooh, against yeah. the MAGA because he's sort of ultra, ultra MAGA even. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Christian nationalism is definitely on the ballot uh, in the next election. Right. Michael Steele, Perry Bacon Jr. We call him PBJ. Good to see you, my friend. Thank <laughs> you both. My, two of my, my, my buddies there. Thank you all very much. Up next, Israel intensifies its air and ground assault on Gaza as the rapidly rising death toll leads to increasingly urgent calls for a ceasefire. My commentary on that is next. Stay with us. 
Hey friends, are you struggling to attract and retain top talent? If you're worried about recruiting and retention, consider Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices so you can spend more time growing your business and less time on HR. Visit Insperity.com and download their free ebook on how to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your success. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Hey parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Sometimes in this journalism business, it is hard to get the words exactly right, particularly in a situation that is complex and layered, which evokes so much deep emotion and conflict and where people's lives are literally at stake. And given how brittle the feelings are to the point where many Americans are afraid to say anything at all, we should be able to agree on a few fundamentals. First, that it is wrong to kill children. Whether they are Israeli children or Palestinian children, it is wrong to kill kids in a concert field or in a kibbutz or in a hospital. In fact, it is morally repugnant. If we can't agree on that, then we can't be friends. We should also agree that anti-Semitism is wrong, full stop, period. And it should horrify everyone that we're seeing attacks against Jewish people here and abroad, like the online messages threatening violence against Jewish students at Cornell University or the anti-Semitic mob that stormed an airport tarmac in Russia, apparently searching for Jewish passengers on a flight from Israel, or the Heil Hitler message projected on an interstate overpass in Georgia. None of this is okay, needless to say. And no matter how you feel about the government in Israel and what that government does, that is not an excuse to take out your anger on individual Jewish people, whether they're Americans or Israelis or British or random passengers on a plane. Keep in mind, Some of your strongest allies in your outrage on behalf of Palestinians are Jewish. They are protesting beside you and getting arrested with you at those protests. And many of them are walking around in shock and horror and fear right now because of October 7th, worrying about their families and wondering who their friends are. Likewise, you can't judge every Palestinian or every Muslim or every Arab based on what Hamas did any more than you could have judged every American by the fact that some Americans elected a religious extremist, a religious extremist backed wannabe autocrat and now multiple indicted criminal whose MAGA movement tried to violently overthrow the government and still might. And again, it should be needless to say being for Palestinians freedom and staying alive does not mean you love Hamas or support them. The Hamas attack killed an estimated 1,400 people, including children, according to Israeli authorities. And as of tonight, the death toll in Gaza has topped 8,000 since October 7th, including 3,400 children, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. President Biden may say he doesn't believe Palestinians when they say how many of them have been killed. But reporting by news organizations like the AP, Reuters, the BBC, and our own reporters on the ground make it clear that the numbers of dead and the devastation in Gaza are staggering. The internet and some electricity have been turned back on, at least for now, and journalists and people in Gaza are still getting pictures out, so we can see with our own eyes that the situation is dire, and the violence goes beyond bombs. 
The U.S. is warning Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to rein in extremist settlers in the occupied West Bank in the wake of reports of violence against Palestinians there. According to the Associated Press, a Jewish settler shot and killed a Palestinian man who was harvesting olives near the West Bank city of Nablus. This means at least seven Palestinians have been killed by settlers since the latest violence broke out more than three weeks ago. With that as a backdrop, Netanyahu gave a war speech over the weekend that can only be described as a religious call to arms, citing a biblical reference when saying, quote, you must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our holy Bible, unquote. Now, for those not familiar with the biblical term Amalek, here is the relevant quotation from 1 Samuel 15, 3. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Which does not sound like self-defense. Frankly, it sounds a lot more like a call for genocide. Israeli jets have bombarded not just northern Gaza, but southern Gaza too, despite Israeli officials calling on the two million displaced Palestinians to flee south. And given these bombings are being done using our tax dollars, perhaps we should ask some questions. For example, how does bombing a densely populated land strip filled 50% with children constitute self-defense? How does bombing hospitals, churches, mosques, and UN schools constitute self-defense? Well, you say, if Hamas fighters are hiding in the hospital using the civilians as human shields, okay, let's say they are. Are you arguing that flattening the hospital and killing newborns in their incubators and their moms in the NICU, cancer patients, someone with a broken leg, the doctors, nurses, and just the women and kids hiding in the hospital, that that's not a war crime? Because you would be wrong, according to international law. But why don't the people in Gaza just turn over Hamas militants to the Israelis? Okay, how do you propose they do that? Hamas is the de facto government in Gaza, and they're the ones with the guns. The leaders of Hamas aren't even in Gaza. And if they were, if you were a teenager living in an open-air prison, getting bombed day and night by, let's say, Mexico, and Mexican police kicked in the door and raided your house anytime they wanted and turned off the water and cut off your food, what are you going to do? Side with them? Help them while you're dying? That's like asking why black folks don't help or trust the police. Okay, but after 9-11, we bombed Afghanistan in self-defense? Yeah, we did. And did that put an end to al-Qaeda or get bin Laden? No, it did not. Because like Hamas, bin Laden wasn't in the country we were bombing. President Obama got him 10 years later in Pakistan using special forces and without bombing scores of kids to death. Bombing Afghanistan did buy us a 20-year occupation that got us more enemies in the Muslim world when we scooped people up on the battlefield and dragged them off to Gitmo. And when we threw in a gratuitous war against Iraq based on lies by a Bush administration that traded on our anger and our fear, the world rose up against us as we committed torture and tossed former Iraqi police and soldiers into makeshift gulags, and those prisoners later turned into ISIS. Oh, and the Taliban are back in control of Afghanistan. So again, what is the goal of mass bombing Gaza? Is it to find the people Hamas militants abducted on October 7? Okay, how? By flattening whatever shelter they're taking from the bombs? Don't you risk killing them all by bombing them with the Palestinians? Just some relevant questions. And trust me, people do want answers. Over the weekend, 
Protests erupted around the world with hundreds of thousands of demonstrators rallying in cities in Europe, the Middle East, Asia, Copenhagen, Rome, Stockholm, Kuala Lumpur. Scores took to the streets in the U.S., shutting down the Brooklyn Bridge in New York and a major highway in San Francisco. The call in each of these protests was for a ceasefire, a word that for some has somehow come to mean anti-Semitism and a lack of care about those who were brutally killed on October 7th, or even support for Hamas. So how then do you explain the family members of some of those being held by Hamas who are also calling for a ceasefire? And what would a ceasefire even mean? Well, it would literally mean both sides stop shooting. No more rockets into Israel. No more Israeli jets strafing Gaza. It would mean a prisoner swap negotiated by credible third parties, which sadly probably doesn't include us at this point. It would mean getting food, water and medicine into Gaza and not pushing for two million Palestinians to expel themselves to Egypt or Jordan, likely to never be allowed to return. Hopefully, it would mean tamping down the McCarthyism and the doxing and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and anti-Palestinian racism in our own country and in Europe. And then somebody, anybody actually working to solve the real problem, which is a 56-year occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip that has sparked and will continue to spark vehement and, yes, even violent resistance, whether Hamas exists or not. It's a lot to unpack. And sometimes it feels like an impossible conversation. But we need to have it anyway, today, tomorrow, and in the many days ahead. Today, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said a ceasefire will not happen in his latest speech, pointed at an international audience. What that means for the region, the U.S., and the world is next. Today, Israeli officials claim their forces rescued a soldier who had been captured by Hamas militants in the October 7 terrorist attack. Private Ori Megadish is said to be in good condition and has been reunited with her family, according to a joint statement from the Israel Defense Forces and the Shin Bet Security Service. This comes just hours after the military wing of Hamas released a chilling video showing three female hostages, one who was speaking critically of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his government. However, it's unclear if she's speaking on her own volition or is reading a re reading Hamas propaganda from a script. It all comes as Israel has intensified its attack against the Gaza Strip, both by air and on the ground. Yet even as Gaza's health ministry says the death toll has surpassed 8,000, Prime Minister Netanyahu today forcefully rejected calls for a ceasefire. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Joining me now is Peter Beinart, editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, author of the Beinart Notebook on Substack and an MSNBC political analyst. Peter, it's great to see you. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu talk, uh, brought up 9-11. What we did after 9-11 was bomb a country bin Laden was not in and then start a war in a country that had nothing to do with 9-11. So I'm really not sure that analogy really works for him. But what did you make of it? Right. I mean, like the United States, Israel has the capacity to go in and depose hostile governments because that is a powerful military. But what the United States learned in, in, in very difficult ways was that it's easy to get in. It's very difficult to get out. Um, and that is, and you can, may look strong at the beginning when you depose the government because Israel wants to show strength now, but you end up looking very weak when you're in a quagmire. 
Nobody that I have heard in the Israeli government or their supporters here has a good answer to the question of what happens after they depose this Hamas government. No one in Israel wants to stay in Gaza because they know that they will be dealing with an insurgency that will be killing Israeli soldiers as long as they're there. But any government that they try to prop up any Palestinian government they try to prop up will collapse the minute they leave. This is basically the same problem the U.S. had in Afghanistan and Iraq. And instead of invoking 9-11 to say, we're going to do what you did, I think Israelis would be wiser to, to, wiser to learn from our mistakes after 9-11. The other thing he brought up was, um, after you know, the Pearl Harbor attack. By the time that the United States dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the war was essentially over. We obliterated two entire cities really for no war purpose. And if you watch Oppenheimer and you watch the documentary, it was in part because we wanted to see what, what it would do. We're the only country that's ever dropped a nuclear weapon. We're the only one. So I'm not sure that analogy works, because it does seem like meeting out needless suffering isn't a good excuse for meeting out needless suffering. No, in fact, not only is it just fundamentally wrong to kill innocent people who had nothing to do with the evil attack that Hamas committed on October 7th, we know that Hamas recruits its fighters from the families of people who were killed by Israel, right? So for every person you kill, it's not just that that is immoral to kill innocent people. It's also that you are producing the next generation of fighters who you will be having to deal with a generation later. And even if it's not called Hamas, it's Hamas 3.0. The truth is the Palestinians have been fighting against Israel and resisting Israel since the very beginning and will continue to, sometimes in ethical ways and sometimes in horrific ways, until they have their basic rights, because that's what all human beings do. All human beings resist oppression. The United States was not occupying Japan when Pearl Harbor happened. Israel is occupying millions of Palestinians in the West Bank and, yes, also in Gaza because it controls it. It's like a prison. It controls it with Egypt from the perimeter. And if you treat people that way, they are going to fight back. And so what's really important for Israel and the United States to do is to try to strengthen those Palestinians who resist ethically, who do so in the name of human rights and mutual coexistence and international law and weaken the people who do the horrors like Hamas did. And what I fear is that again and again, we have done the opposite. When Palestinians have gone to the UN, when they've gone to the International Criminal Court, when they've talked about nonviolent tactics like boycotts and divestment sanctions, you don't have to support every single one of those. But if you oppose all of them and you even criminalize them in the United States, as we have done by saying you can't get a job in state government unless you you sign a pledge saying you'll never boycott Israel, you know what you're doing? You're sending the message to Hamas that nonviolence, that ethical resistance doesn't work. And that strengthens Hamas. It doesn't mean that anyone except Hamas is responsible. Of course, only Hamas is responsible. But it sends the message that ethical resistance doesn't work. And that's very dangerous. You know, and there, there's also the climate issue, right? That We've created a climate now where people who are just marching for Palestinians to have rights and to have self-determination and for there to be a Palestine are being doxxed, are being threatened with losing jobs. And every protest that is pro-Palestinian is now being labeled as pro-Hamas, which it isn't. Uh, and there is like a, a chilling effect that people are actually afraid to say anything, even if their moral compass says they don't like the idea of seeing children bombed. There are, people are afraid to even say that. Right. I mean, we're in a terrifying climate because anti-Semitism is rising. And I know very, very firsthand that 
all and almost everyone in the Jewish community is very, very, very terrified about this, about yeah. what's happening. And there's also a tremendous amount of anti-Palestinian racism. And that often doesn't get named. We don't even have a term for anti-Palestinian racism. But we're seeing that these kids are colleges are getting docs. There's somebody having to leave college. They're now even talking about basically banning students for justice in Palestine. I have my disagreements with students at Justice in Palestine, but they have the right to free speech. And the idea that Ron DeSantis is saying he's just going to ban them from Florida campuses, that we have to, seems to me, to come together to defend each other's rights, that Jews have the right to be safe on America's campuses, Jews have the right to speak freely, even if you disagree with some of us, and Palestinians have those same rights, and ultimately, our safety is intertwined. It's intertwined in Israel-Palestine, and it's intertwined here in the United States as well. Peter Beinart, um, thank you so much. It's always a, a, a pleasure to be able to speak with you, even in horrible times like these. Thank you. We'll be right back. And that's tonight's readout. Hey, friends, are you struggling to attract and retain top talent? If you're worried about recruiting and retention, consider Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices so you can spend more time growing your business and less time on HR. Visit Insperity.com and download their free ebook on how to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your success. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com.